Micah is one of the 12 shorter prophetic books found at the end of the Old Testament. It's located between Jonah and Nahum, and our text, if you're using the Pew Bibles, is found on page 826. Before we read and consider this text, please join me in prayer, seeking the Lord's guidance. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge our complete dependence upon you to understand your word and make application of it in our lives. We feel so blessed that you are a God who speaks through the Holy Spirit, and we pray that he would be at work in each of us, giving us understanding of your character, your works, and what it means to live as your people and for your glory. You say in James 1.5 that you give wisdom generously to those who ask. So we ask this of you now with the faithful assurance that you'll hear our prayer and grant our request. Amen. Let us begin by reading Matthew 5.2. In this verse, God, speaking through Micah, addresses Bethlehem, saying, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be a ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. We can note three things as we consider this verse. First, this predicted ruler would come, like David before him, from the little, seemingly insignificant town of Bethlehem. He would spring from the root of Jesse. At the time of Christ's birth, people knew that their only hope lay in the coming of a long-awaited Messiah. Deuteronomy 18 told them that the Lord would raise up a prophet like Moses from among the people. Isaiah 9 spoke of the coming of a child who would reign on the throne of David and establish a kingdom of righteousness from now on and forever. And Daniel 9 spoke of a son of a man coming who would be given authority to rule in glory an everlasting kingdom. The chief priests and scribes carefully studied the scriptures for an indication when God would send such a prophet to rescue and lead his people. This is evident in that the chief priests and elders referenced the verse we're looking at, Micah 5.2, when they were summoned by a disturbed King Herod after he had heard from wise men of the East that a Messiah, a king of the Jews, was to be born. This is recorded in Matthew 2.5, where they told Herod, this king, this Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem of Judea, because this is what was written by the prophet. A second thing to note as we consider this verse is this. We see that this promised ruler would serve God perfectly. It says he will rule over Israel for me, that is, for God, for God's glory. Everything God created was made for the purpose of displaying his glory. Creation is crucial to understanding who God is and what he is about. And mankind, being made in the image of God, was uniquely created to reflect the glory of God. But because of Adam and Eve's sin, because of the fall, creation is frustrated in its purpose to display God's glory. Yet we see this promised ruler would serve God perfectly. Everything he would do would be done for God and for God's glory. 
In sharp contrast to the self-serving rulers in place during the time of Micah, this promised ruler would be for God wholeheartedly. This man who would come to rule would not be like fallen Adam. He would not be born in sin, being conceived directly by the Holy Spirit. And this ruler would not be like Adam and all those born in Adam. He would not choose to exalt himself, to put himself on the throne in the place of God. Rather, this ruler would be for God, freely choosing to obey God, even to the point of death. And a third thing to note is that although this ruler would spring from Bethlehem, the town of David's birth, and have royal lineage, our text says that his origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Nowhere else in the Bible is such a term used of a man, which tells us that this man, this ruler, is both man and God. The only one that can be a ruler and deliverer of God's people is God himself. So this ruler, which Micah is predicting to come and rule over Israel for God, would be both man and God. And yet this ruler, possessing the very nature of God, who has made all things to display his glory, chooses not to pursue his own glory. As Philippians 2.6 tells us, this ruler did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. To understand who this ruler is, who will be raised up, and what he will accomplish in his coming, we need to take a moment and look at two other key things that stand out in the book of Micah. And these are, first, God's commitment to judgment, and second, his commitment to mercy. First, God's commitment to judgment. Judah, the nation Micah was addressing, was in a very precarious position. They were sinful, their leaders were corrupt, and they weren't wholeheartedly following God. They were double-minded, and God stood poised to use a foreign power to bring judgment upon them. We need to take sin seriously because God does. God is not indifferent to our sin. God is holy and just. He judges sin justly. Our sin is personal to God. It is a rebellion against his authority. Sin will always be punished. God cannot remain just if he doesn't punish sin. The guilty will not go free. Since we're all guilty and want to free ourselves from the punishment that our sin deserves, we think it a virtue to wish for freedom from the consequences of our sins and even the consequences of the sins of others. And lately, it's been the cry of many to just open the prison gates and set the prisoners free. But this is not fair, and it's not justice. And this particularly comes into focus when you're the offended party. In such a case, when you're the offended party, you very much want justice. But we need to remember that God is the offended party in all of our sin. David reminds us of this in Psalm 51, when he, seeking to be cleansed from his sin, says, Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done evil in your sight. Our sins are first and foremost against God. And God is, as David goes on to say, right when he passes sentence 
and blameless when he judges. God's justice is fully on display in the book of Micah. We see that God used the Assyrians to completely destroy the ten tribes of Israel that had broken away from Judah and formed a separate nation after Solomon died. For about 250 years, this other nation had pursued false gods, and its kings continually did evil in the sight of the Lord. Finally, the time came for God's judgment to fall upon them using the Assyrian Assyrian army as his instrument. And then, for a time, this Assyrian army also stood outside the city walls of Jerusalem, ready to be used by God to bring judgment upon the people Micah was addressing. This was the case because there was great wickedness and injustice in the land of Judah as well. God, speaking through Micah, said that the sins he had caught that had caused him to bring judgment upon the northern ten tribes of Samaria and make it into a heap of ruins were just as pervasive in the nation of Judah. Thankfully, the people of Judah heard what God was saying to them through Micah and his contemporary Isaiah, and they cried out to the Lord, and he relented in bringing judgment upon them by using the Assyrians. However, their repentance was short-lived, and in little over a hundred years, God would use the now-powerful Babylonians to bring judgment upon Judah for her sin. He would, in a sense, bring judgment upon them by removing them from his presence, by sending them off to exile in Babylon for 70 years. Because God is holy and just, he cannot dwell with the ungodly. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? The answer is none. And so God, like he did with Adam and Eve, in judgment, banished them from his presence. We need, when in thinking about the justice of God and of his judgment of sin— to reflect upon the enormity of our sins. We need to realize the incredible offense our sins give to God. It will only be then that we'll be able to see just how just God is in response to it. And when we do, we will not be tempted to think that our sin is a trifling matter. Many people look at God's action in punishing the guilty as severe and lacking mercy. But this is just because they don't fully understand what was accomplished at the cross, where the greatest display of God's judgment poured out resulted in the greatest display of his mercy in bringing salvation to his people. Let us now focus closely, or a little more closely, on God's commitment to mercy. We need to realize we're all sinners and therefore deserving of God's wrath, no less and no more than the people Micah was addressing in Judah. But thankfully for the people of Judah and for us, our situation is not hopeless. On the contrary, because of this ruler coming from Bethlehem, we do indeed have hope. After describing a besieged Jerusalem ready to face God's judgment, The scene in Micah 5-2 shifts to Bethlehem, 
and Israel's future hope. While David's decadent line of kings was soon to be cut down like a dead tree, God in his mercy was about to start all over again. There is hope because in his mercy, God says, he will raise up a shoot from the stump of Jesse in the person of this ruler for Israel. We need to put our hope and trust in this ruler, who is the only one who can save us from our sin. The only way to be saved from our sin is to believe in Christ's finished work upon the cross, where he stood in our place and bore the wrath of God, which our sin deserved. God says the ruler he is raising up out of Bethlehem will lead and shepherd his people in the way of everlasting life. In the verses following Micah 5.2, it says, He will abandon them. That is, David's Israel that deserves to fall under his judgment. He will abandon them until he, rather, until she, who is in labor, has given birth. That is, until Christ, the ruler of Israel, comes. It goes on to say, Then the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of Yahweh, in the strength of Yahweh his God. That is, future attacks of Satan will cease, and they will live securely, for his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. So in these verses, immediately following Micah 5.2, we see that in mercy, Christ, the Messiah, the ruler of Israel, will draw his people to himself. They will return, they will be converted, and having conquered Satan, he will shepherd his people, and they will live securely as his kingdom extends to the ends of the earth. And so we should plead with God to make it the desire of our hearts to wholeheartedly follow this shepherd where he leads. Recognize that we must have Christ or we perish. Be thankful because there is hope. Be thankful that God is faithful in keeping his promises. It's only by his grace. It is completely his unmerited favor to us in Christ that we can return, be converted, and live securely with him in his everlasting kingdom. One other thing to consider before we close is that, as we've seen while we've been reading John's gospel on Sunday mornings, that there was a wide range in the ability of those who were able to understand and identify who the Messiah was, and also in understanding what he came to accomplish. Many were looking for a political leader who would free them from Roman oppression. Others, someone who would meet earthly needs in filling their stomachs with bread. Others could not understand that the one who God would send must be both God and man like themselves. The fact they knew Jesus' brothers and sisters and where his hometown was, and to hear Jesus say that he had come down from heaven was terribly confusing. Some believed Jesus was the Messiah because of the miracles he performed. Others wanted to seize and arrest him for making what they considered to be blasphemous claims to be one with the Father. And in fact, as Peter notes in Acts 4, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel would assemble together against Jesus, God's anointed one, 
and crucify him because they did not believe his claim to be the Son of God. It's wonderful for us that in doing what they did, this ruler of Israel, in crucifying this ruler of Israel, they accomplished what God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. Their inability to recognize Christ resulted in a man finally, at long last, crushing the serpent's head and has resulted in the salvation of his people, of God's people. In thinking about the inability of so many to see that Jesus was the ruler of Israel, the long-awaited Messiah, it reminds us of what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16 when he acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah when Peter did. Jesus said that flesh and blood did not reveal this truth, but it was his Father in heaven. And so we should make it our prayer that God would cause the Holy Spirit to be at work in each of us, making Christ known as the only way to inherit in only way to inherit eternal life. <clears throat> Jesus said that no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. So let us, in faith, pray that he continues to draw us to Christ, and remember that he promises that those who come to him will never be cast out. All of our hope rests in what Christ did in coming to earth, being born as a man into the race of Adam in Bethlehem, living a life of perfect obedience before God and dying upon the cross as the perfect Lamb of God, bearing all the sin of man as a substitutionary atonement. He took upon himself all the wrath we deserve for our sins, and then, after having been laid in the grave, he rose victoriously, having conquered sin and death. He is the last sacrifice because he was the perfect sacrifice. Being the perfect substitute because no one else ever lived a perfect life. This Christ, who now sits exalted at the right hand of God, is the one who will return and establish the kingdom which Micah spoke about, where God will shepherd his people forever. So, as we conclude, I would encourage you to read through this short book of Micah and see both the threatening of God in bringing judgment upon his people and the promised blessing of being reconciled to him with our sins cast into the depths of the sea, and to recognize that the only way we can move from one foreboding position to the other blessed position is by believing in the one he sent to be born in Bethlehem, to rule over Israel for God, and whose origin is from eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, which tells us how your glory is displayed in Christ Jesus, this ruler of Israel. May each of us look to him in faith and receive forgiveness instead of condemnation, life instead of death, and be reconciled to you forevermore. Thank you again that your greatest display of judgment resulted in the greatest display of your mercy in bringing salvation to sinners through Christ's atoning work at the cross. Amen.